Blog Talk Radio. of spiritual enlightenment and knowledge. Tonight we're going to conclude, maybe, <laughs> it depends, uh, our discussion of the near-death experience and um, move on to another um, lengthy discussion of some other topic. Um, with our uh, discussion of the most extreme example of the near-death experience ever recorded, uh, so why don't you go get you a drink, relax, get ready, and we'll be back in just a minute or so after our musical interlude. So we'll see you in just about a minute. I'm back. I always invite you to go get a drink, but, you know, you don't have to get a drink. I guess some of you may go make a sandwich, you know, or a bowl of chili or something and come back with a snack, popcorn. Why not? Potato chips. Whatever, whatever gets you through the night. Well, and tonight we're going to discuss many interesting topics of spiritual nature. Um I regret the late posting. I didn't post until about 6 o'clock tonight, I think. Um, we had an open house tonight for my wife's granddaughter, and uh, I suppose she's my granddaughter, too. She's lived with us for about two and a half years now. And um, 
uh, of course, you know, she's part of our family. We suppose we're going to be raising her all the way to adulthood. And um, she's a little character. As you might imagine, being raised by me and our wife, she's exposed to uh, spiritual matters and um, the weird sense of humor that we have. And uh, quite open-minded little child and uh, very intelligent and very funny. And we just love her to death. Occasionally she wanders in up here while I'm doing my show and uh, tries to distract me by doing funny things. And sometimes she um, climbs up in my chair with me and uh, uh, helps me. <laughs> she helps me with the show and interjects various things. But we we love we love our little Eileen very much. She had open house today at her school, and it's um, you know her second year of pre-K. Next year she starts kindergarten. My goodness, she's Moved in with us when she was uh, not quite, not quite two, and she'll be uh, five in December. And uh, I know they—it's uh, a cliche, but they do grow very fast. And I suppose at some point, it occurred to me she'll be when she's um, in high school. I'll be in my seventies, which is kind of a scary thought, I guess. But men in my family live to be over a hundred, and they. Uh, used to uh, drink and smoke and chase women, and I only do, um, you know, I don't do two out of three of those. So, you know, pick whichever two you want. Well, tonight we're going to be talking about the extreme near-death experience. And, uh, of course, first we talk about our crystal, and then we do our prayers. And, of course, this is the Crystal Silence League. We are a prayer organization. And we were founded in 1917 by Mr. Claude Alexander Conlon for the purpose of distributing a positive affirmation and prayer for all those in need of such. We're a nonprofit organization. It doesn't cost anything for prayer. We don't charge for prayer. And uh, it's a funny thing because many people say that, but they really do. I'll, I'll tell you that my aunt once went to a Billy Graham crusade, and she got saved. She got salvation. She went up when they called for sinners. She came up. She felt the Spirit, and she came up. And they took her name and address to send her uh, newsletters and stuff, but she got a bill in the mail. And uh, I tell people the story, and they go, well, it wasn't a bill. I said, yes, it was. It was a strong suggestion that since she got salvation, that she should send uh, regular monetary donations to the ministry. And I said, and it was worded in such a way that the Lord might be displeased with her. She didn't she didn't uh, support the ministry with regular monthly donations uh, it was a bill it was an invoice now come on so i just remembered that my family my mom said hail she sent in a bill she she got sent a bill for that so you're being saved i mean my mom said that for a long time and i've told people this and they said well it wasn't a bill i said yes yes it was it was a bill it was a bill for salvation because you know god likes those green leafy salads of salvation i'll tell you that but Prayer is always free at the Crystal Silence League, and you can find us at www.crystalsilenceleague.org. And with that said, we do have a gift shop, so if you want to buy crystals and crystal balls and books from us, we have them. And uh, uh, any purchase, you get a uh, free membership for a year with any purchase, a free membership with a purchase. You know, that's – and come on now. That's like if you buy a box of cereal and you get a free decoder ring, you know, or a prize or – like uh, we take our granddaughter to McDonald's and they get a Happy Meal and you get a free toy in it. it. It's like that. It really is. It's like that. You get the free toy in the Happy Meal. You get a free membership if you buy a book from us. You're going to buy the book anyway from somebody. And 
you know, if you buy a free book, if you buy a book from Amazon, you don't get nothing for free. So come on, you know, and also you're supporting Republicans. Did you know that if you buy from Amazon, you're supporting Republicans. So, you know, think about that www.crystalsilenceleague.org, and there you are. So let's talk about our crystal of the week, which is um, which is something here. Um, what in the world is it? Um, it is um, cordierite, yeah, cordierite, and. Uh, Cordierite's a very, very interesting stone. I want to tell you that right now. Um, um, it is um, a stone sometimes called water sapphire. If you look at it, it looks blue. Then you turn it, and it'll look green. Then you turn it again, and it might be uh, reddish purple. One of those stones that changes colors depending on how light hits it. So I will tell you that it's very good if you feel off balance and um, um uh, dispirited. Uh, it can help you uh, achieve your balance again. Um, it can help you if you feel like you're jinxed or or hexed or cursed. Um, this is a very good stone to help you uh, during that time when you're being uncrossed or unjinxed, uh, unhexed. It will. I'll tell you that it is a stone that, to me, if you look at um, Cordierite, and then you look at uh, the sky during twilight, you'll see all the colors of twilight reflected in it. So it's good for contemplation. It stimulates your astral body. It helps you during astral travel. It helps you uh, as your soul uh, attempts to develop itself and its ability to travel and uh, um, develop the skills involved with the astral senses. Since it does operate in the uh, blue-purple violet range, you're looking at the upper three chakras, so all the skills involved with that. It's a very hard stone. Uh, I will tell you that. Um, It will um, uh, not dissolve in water, so if you make an elixir from it, just drop it in the water, let it um, uh, diffuse in sunlight or in moonlight, take it out of the water, Add a few drops of brandy and use it um, to uh, anoint um, your chakras with it. Sprinkle it about your environment. Make an ink from it and draw with it, uh, whatever you like. You can use it in watercolor paint and uh, paint with it as well. So that's Cordierite, our Crystal of the Week. Now, if you go to www.crystalsilenceleague.org, you'll see that there's uh, many pages there. We have... uh, the link to the Missionary Independent Spiritual Churches, which t- tells you all of our sister churches. A letter from uh, uh, Mr. C- uh, Claude Conlon, uh, Claude Alexander Conlon, our founder, our gift shop. Photos of crystal balls on our altars. The uh, Association of Independent Readers and Root Workers, all of whom will do uh, candle work for you. Um, they'll burn vigil candles for you. And... Um, You'll also see our prayer request page. Now, if you go to the prayer request page, you can pray along with me. It's been my custom since we started this show that I will read aloud many of our prayers. I can't read them all because we get over 200 a week, sometimes more, depending on what's going on in the world. And I never read the names out loud. We preserve anonymity um, in our church. 
I do read them by prayer ID, though. And we'll start with prayer ID number 75075. Pray for AI that she overcomes depression, stress, and negative influences. Uh, may it be so. May these prayers reach her. Amen. And prayer ID 75074, who says that P, which I suppose is her man, confessed to cheating last month and yesterday told me the details and says he's realized that he loves me and wants us to try again. I'm devastated after being together for nine years. I don't know how to let go of this pain. I love him lots and do believe we can be happy together, but this insecurity and fear is destroying us. I don't know what to do. Please take away his stubborn pride and temptation and let him realize the pain he's caused and let me not push him away with my hurt and anger. Amen. That's a tough one. Prayer ID 75073. He says, Thanking God's angels for me and P to having an awesome time this Sunday. Praying he gets the courage to kiss me. Thank you all. Amen. Man up, sir. Man up. Give her a kiss. Prayer ID 75072. Pray for my sister-in-law to get through her divorce strong and with an open heart and mind that she can use this opportunity to look into herself and make changes to break this vicious circle and find happiness and peace within before jumping into another relationship for all the wrong reasons. Amen. Avoid the rebound. Prayer ID 75071. Hello, beautiful souls. My name is... PM, and I ask that you please pray that my dad's prostate size is reduced back to a normal and healthy size. He had a yearly checkup, and his doctor sent him for an x-ray as his prostate was slightly increased in size. Please pray that the x-ray scan shows no signs for concern at all, and that my dad's prostate size goes back down to normal. Thank you. Love and light to all of you. Amen. And prayer ID 75070, please pray that my friend will forgive me and forget what I have done to hurt her. I unfortunately used her and caused her distress, for which I am most sorry. Please also allow her to forgive me for being inappropriate and saying stuff to her husband, which caused offense. Allow us to move on from this and start afresh together in our friendship. Thank you. Amen. And prayer ID 75069. Thank you for all the prayers given since February. So far, there has been no pregnancy, and it saddens me to have been told my love has made an appointment for a vasectomy. We've discussed that. I want to be married, and he now has changed his mind from never wanting us to be married to he's not against it now. We've been inseparable for over a year. We complete each other. I pray with all of me that we can conceive before the end of September when he has had his appointment and a living marriage to follow. Amen. Prayer ID 75068. Please, please, fellow brothers and sisters, my suffering is deep. I need healing. Please, please pray for me that I may be miraculously healed in body, mind, and spirit. Amen. Prayer ID 75067. 
Uncle E's back in the hospital again. He's feeling suicidal. Doctors keep giving him the runaround. No straight answers. Seems he has some sort of infection in his blood, and his blood sugar levels have been falling dangerously low. Please pray he may be miraculously healed in body, spirit, and mind. Amen. Prayer ID number 75065. Please pray that S gets hired as a permanent employee of his current job. He really likes it, wants to stay there permanently. Amen. Prayer ID 75063. Just to be and be surrounded by love and to fearlessly radiate that energy to everyone I'm in contact with always. Amen. Prayer ID 75062. Please pray that my prayers are answered and that my ex-boyfriend and me get back together. Thank you very much. Amen. Prayer ID 75061. Please continue to pray for M and I daily. Please, God, restore our relationship to a more healthy union. Amen. Prayer ID 75060. Dear St. Jude, I'm going to relocate again. I'm not getting what I paid for here in this apartment. So I'm moving again. Please help me find the right place easily and stress less. I appreciate all you do. Thank you. Amen. And prayer ID 75059. Kindly pray for my job change. Depths to be cleared. Parents' health I have Parents' health, and I have a job at due expenses incurred towards medical bills of parents and kids' school. Fee debts has increased. I'm trying hard to job change so that I can clear debts. In spite of all the issues, I'm paying my tithe to the church regularly. Regards. Amen. Let's do one more. Prayer ID 75057. My grandma just passed away in February. And my parents are offering to buy her house because it means so much to us. It is the one comfort we have. My mom's two brothers are the executors, and they just got another offer they may accept on purpose just to be horrible. Please pray for us losing this place. Please pray for us as losing this place, complete with a full wall mural my grandma painted, would be like another loss all over again. It's excruciating. I thank you so much for your support, more than I can say. Amen. And let's have a moment of silent prayer for all those in need of comfort and assistance and support.
Amen. Last week we began the story of um, of um, 35-year-old uh, Pam Reynolds, who's being operated on for an aneurysm, which was uh, blocking uh, a giant aneurysm in the wall of her basilar artery, which is located um, at the base of her brain. A weakness in the wall of the large artery had caused it to balloon out, kind of like what happens when you get a bubble on your tire. And unless this uh, aneurysm was removed or repaired, uh, these aneurysms are invariably fatal. So Pam had been referred to uh, Dr. Robert Spitzler of the Barrow Institute, as Spitzler had pioneered a uh, a surgical procedure known as hypothermic cardiac arrest that allows surgery on this uh, type of uh, aneurysm and other uh, delicate procedures on the human brain with a reasonable chance of success. I stress that word reasonable chance of success because up to up to that point, it was uh, foolhardy to try to operate on uh, aneurysms within the brain. The survival rate was very, very low until this particular operation which had been nicknamed standstill by the surgeon's surgical team who performed it because it required that the patient's body temperature was below to 60 degrees Fahrenheit. Now understand that the normal body temperature is like 98.6 degrees or 96.8, 96 96.8 or 96.8. Is that right? Almost a hundred degrees. You lower it down to 60 degrees, which is like you know, 30, 38 degrees or 30 to 40 degrees lower than normal. The heartbeat, heartbeat and breathing totally stopped, and the electrical activity in the brain extinguished. Because in order to operate on the brain, you cannot have any activity in it at all. And then the blood drained from the head and most of the body. So in every test, by any criteria in clinical terms, the patient is dead by every test known to modern medicine. So you have to go to what – you have to discuss for a while what's considered dead. Well, back in the uh, uh, 17 and 1800s, people had a terror – of being buried alive. You know this, right? Because people would go into these cataleptic uh, seizures where they appeared to be dead. And then uh, it became obvious when people would uh, dig up graveyards that some people woke up in the coffin and had been prematurely buried. Edgar Allan Poe had a horror of this. So they came up with these devices called graveyard bells uh, that people bought. There was a great market for these. Uh, I own one, by the way. I have a graveyard bell. I think I have pictures of it on my website that I bought from a family. And uh, these devices were uh, placed over a grave, and then a string was fed down through a tube into the grave and tied to people's hands. If they woke up in the grave, they would ring these bells furiously, 
and then uh, the watchman on guard would, uh, you know, raise an alarm and people would come and dig, 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 and hope to get to the person in time. And uh, it is said, and I'm not sure that these legends are correct, but it said that when they were there too late and the person died of shock or asphyxiation, they were called a dead ringer, and that's where that comes from, the expression dead ringer. Uh, it's also said that if they got there in time, that's where the expression saved by the bell comes from. That's what, These may just be legends, but that's what I'm told. So um, they determined – they had ways of telling when someone was dead. For instance, they would hold a mirror under their nose, and if the mirror fogged, they weren't breathing. Well, along comes the stethoscope. And they had two tests. If your heart stopped and you weren't breathing, you were dead. Well, sometimes that wasn't enough. Um, so they began to uh, keep people around until they began to putrefy, until they began to smell um, in certain families because some families had a history of catalepsy. Um, then along comes more delicate instruments and the definition of death came when higher brain activity stopped. So the medulla oblongata could still be operating, keeping you breathing, right? Keeping your heart beating. But if your higher brain activities aren't working, you're considered uh, in, a, in a persistent vegetative state. And uh, if your, your uh, brain, if your heart and lungs are being kept alive mechanically and your brain stops, you know, your family can pull the plug on you and, you know, let you pass. So there's, um, uh, some definite, you know, some definition means your heart doesn't work. You're not breathing and your brain did. Okay. So an operation standstill, your heart is stopped. Your breathing is stopped. Your body temperature is lowered to a cryogenic 60 degrees and your, the electrical activity of your brain is stopped. By all definitions of clinical death, the patient is dead so that the operation on the brain can be performed. This is an extraordinary episode in surgical procedure. Now, so what happens when that occurs? And then they bring you back. It, it's strange, isn't it? Uh, because there are people, you know, skeptics say, well, by definition, they're not dead because they're resurrected, right? If 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 they're, um, you know, to say that they're dead and then they come back, they're not dead, right? Well, but are they? You know, the very definition of death, you know, that's why they're called near-death experiences, right? So, but... The medical community says they're dead. If we did not resuscitate them, they would be put in a coffin and buried. They'd be dead. So this um, circumstances I'm about to describe to you is described in great detail by uh, Dr. Michael Sebaum, who we discussed quite a bit. He's probably our leading uh, researcher in uh, near-death experience um, in his book, Light and, De Light and Death. As he notes, the medical documentation of these events in this case uh, far exceeds any recorded before and provides us with our most complete scientific glimpse into the near-death experience. 
so um, so Our Lady uh, Pam Reynolds uh, was wheeled into the operating room, given general anesthesia, and then uh, prepped for surgery. So all the instruments were set up to record blood pressure, EEG, uh, etc. Now um, they uh, they put these uh, speakers in your ears during this procedure to test the auditory nerve center in the brain stem. And they used 100 decibel clicks emitted from small speakers, which create a loud staccato noise in both ears. Um, so as long as Pam's brainstem was still functioning, these clicks evoke sharp spikes on the electrons, you know, click, 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 click. Um, so Pam's ready for surgery. 20 physicians, nurses, and technicians were standing around. Uh, Dr. Spitzler, the surgeon, opened her scalp with a surgical blade and folded the scalp back to expose the skull. Uh, Dr. Spitzler used a Midas Rex pneumatic-powered bone saw um, to uh, open her skull. And according to Pam, this is when her experience began. And she says, the next thing I recall was the sound. It was a natural D. As I listened to the sound, I felt it was pulling me out of the top of my head. The further out of my body I got, the more clear the tone became. I had the impression it was like a road, a frequency that you go on. I remember seeing several things in the operating room when I was looking down. It was the most aware that I think I'd ever been in my life. I was metaphorically sitting on Dr. Spettler's shoulder. It wasn't like normal vision. It was brighter and more focused and clearer than normal vision. There was so much in the operating room that I didn't recognize and so many people. I thought the way they had my head shaved was very peculiar. I expected them to take all of the hair, but they did not. The saw thing I hated the sound of looked like an electric toothbrush, and it had a dent in it, a groove at the top, where the saw appeared to go into the handle, but it didn't. And the saw had interchangeable blades, too, but those blades were in what looked like a socket wrench case. I heard the saw crank up. I didn't see them use it on my head, but I think I heard it being used on something. It was humming at a relatively high pitch, and then all of a sudden it went like that. So Dr. Spetzler removed the section of bone and exposed the outermost membrane, membrane of Pam's brain, which was cut open with scissors, and the operating microscope was swung into position. And while this was going on, a cardiac surgeon located the femoral artery and vein in Pam's right groin. And these vessels turned out to be too small to handle the large flow of blood required by the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And so the left femoral artery and vein were prepared instead. Afterward, uh, Pam claimed to remember this point in the surgery. She said, I distinctly remember a female voice saying, we have a problem. Her arteries are too small. And then a male voice said, try the other side. It seemed to come from further down the table. I do remember wondering, what are they doing there? Because this is brain surgery. So after cutting through the membrane, Spetzler probed deep into Pam's brain until he located the aneurysm on the neck of the giant basilar artery. As he feared, it turned out to be extremely large and extended up into the brain. So the risky procedure of hypothermic cardiac arrest, the procedure that's known as Operation Standstill, would be needed and we'll come back after station identification and see what happened
The LMC Radio Network is a media alliance whose excellent shows include the Lucky Mojo Hoodoo Rootwork Hour with Catherine Ironwood and Conjurman Ollie, Sundays, 3 to 4.30, the Crystal Silence League Hour with John St. Germain, Tuesdays, 5 to 6, and the Witch, the Priestess, and the Cauldron with Elvira Love and Phoenix Le Fay, Fridays, 6 to 7. All time specific, add three hours for Eastern, sponsored by the Lucky Mojo Curio Company in Forestville, California, and online at luckymojo.com. And we're back. So the cardiac surgeon inserted tubes into the arteries and veins and connected them to hoses to the cardiopulmonary bypass machine. And so warm blood traveled from the artery into the cylinders of the bypass machine, and it was cooled and returned to Pam's body. Pam's body temperature began to to fall, and by 11 o'clock, Pam's core body temperature had dropped 25 degrees, and the cardiac monitor's warning tone indicated cardiac malfunction. And Pam's heart began beating in the irregular disorganized pattern known as ventricular fibrillation. Dr. Sebaum describes what the surgical team did next. And in his words, which you can read in the book if you like, five minutes later, the remaining electrical spasms of Pam's dying heart were extinguished with massive intravenous doses of potassium chloride. Cardiac arrest was complete. As Pam's heart arrested, her brain waves flattened into complete electrocerebral silence. Brain stem function weakened as the clicks from the ear speakers produced lower and lower spikes on the monitoring electrogram. 20 minutes later, her core body temperature had fallen another 13 degrees to a tomb-like 60 degrees Fahrenheit. The clicks from her ear speakers no longer elicited a response. Total brain shutdown. Then at precisely 11.25 a.m., Pam was subjected to one of the most daring and remarkable surgical maneuvers ever performed in an operating room. The head of the operating table was tilted up, the cardiopulmonary bypass machine was turned off, and the blood was drained from Pam's body like oil from a car. Pam recalled that sometime during this period she felt a sensation of being pulled quickly through a vortex that she described as being like a tunnel, but it wasn't a tunnel. And she says... At some point very early in the tunnel vortex, I became aware of my grandmother calling me, but I didn't hear her call me with my ears. It was a clearer hearing than with my ears. I trust the sense more than I trust my own ears. The feeling was that she wanted me to come to her, so I continued with no fear down the shaft. It's a dark shaft that I went through, and at the very end, there was this very tiny little pinpoint of light that kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger. So Pam entered the light, and there, sent, and there she sensed a presence that at first she couldn't see. Then she was able to discern different figures in the light, which began to form shapes that she began to recognize. And she says, I can see that one of them was my grandmother. I didn't know if it was reality or projection, but I would know my grandmother, the sound of her, anytime and anywhere. Everyone I saw looking back on it, fit perfectly into my understanding of what that person looked like at their best during their life. I recognized a lot of people. My Uncle Gene was there, so was my great-great-Aunt Maggie, who was really a cousin. On Papa's side of the family, my grandfather was there. They were specifically taking care of me, looking after me. They would permit me to go no further. 
it was communicated to me. That's the best way I know how to say it, because they didn't speak like I'm speaking. That if I went all the way into the light, something would happen to me physically. They would be unable to put me back into the body, me, like I had gone too far and they couldn't reconnect. So they wouldn't let me go anywhere or do anything. So when all the blood had drained from Pam's brain, the aneurysm collapsed like a deflated balloon. It was Dr. Spetzler removed it. The cardiopulmonary machine was turned back on, and warm blood was pumped back into Pam's body. As her body temperature began to rise, blips on the electrogram registered the first signs of life as the brainstem began to gain, again respond to the clicking speakers that were in Pam's ears. Soon afterward, waves on the EEG screen indicated electrical activity in her higher brain centers. So Pam's body appeared to be waking up. Then at noon, the surgical team faced a very serious problem. The initially silent heart monitor indicated Pam's heart was beating again, but with an irregular rhythm that indicated ventricular fibrillation. So if not corrected, Pam's heart would be damaged within minutes. The cardiac surgeon placed the two defibrillator paddles on Pam's chest and shocked her heart. When 50 joules of electricity produced no response, the machine was charged with 100 joules. A second jolt restored the normal heart rhythm, and the surgical team sighed with relief. Pam described her near-death experience came to a close. My grandmother didn't take me back through the tunnel or even send me back or ask me to go. She just looked up at me. I expected to go with her, but it was communicated to me that she just didn't think she would do that. My uncle said he would do it. He's the one who took me back through the end of the tunnel. Everything was fine. I did want to go. But then I got to the end of it and saw the thing, my body. I didn't want to get into it. It looked terrible, like a train wreck. I looked like what it was, dead. I believe it was covered. It scared me, and I didn't want to look at it. It was communicated to me that it was like jumping into a swimming pool. No problem. Just jump right into the swimming pool. I didn't want to, but I guess I was late or something because he, the uncle, pushed me. I felt a definite repelling and at the same time a pulling from the body. The body was pulling and the tunnel was pushing. It was like diving into a pool of ice water. It hurt. By 12.32, Pam's body was warm to a life-sustaining but still subnormal temperature of 89.6 degrees, and the bypass machine was turned off. Her surgical wounds were closed, and the record indicates that at 2.10 p.m., she was taken to the recovery room in stable condition. So by three clinical tests, a flat EEG, no brainstem activity, and no blood flowing through the brain, Pam's brain was dead, with almost certainly no activity whatsoever. And yet, somehow, Pam reported the deepest near-death experience ever investigated by Dr. Sebaum or anybody. So sometime later, Pam was interviewed on CBS's show 48 Hours, along with uh, Dr. Sebaum and Dr. Spetzler. And as Pam's attending physician, uh, Spetzler left no doubt about Pam's clinical condition during hypothermic cardiac arrest. He said, if you would examine that patient from a clinical perspective during that hour, that patient, by all definition, would be dead. At this point, there is no brain activity, 
No blood going through the brain. Nothing. 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 Like other near-death experiencers, Pam Reynolds describes seeing events from an elevated location that could not have been perceived or inferred by auditory means. Initially, Dr. Sabone was very skeptical when he first listened to Pam's description of a bone saw that looked like an electric toothbrush with interchangeable blades. But later, when he received a user's manual from the Midas Rex company in Fort Worth, Texas, he found out that it was a very accurate description. Photographs from the manual showed a tool that resembled an electric toothbrush with interchangeable blades that are stored in what Pam described as a socket wrench case. Furthermore, Pam reported that shortly after part of her skull was removed, she heard a female voice say something about my veins and arteries being very small, and the medical records indicate that words of this effect were indeed spoken. And at that time, Pam's ears were blocked by small molded speakers inserted to monitor the auditory nerve centers in her brainstem. These speakers continually played 100 decibel clicks into her ears at a rate of 11.3 per second. 11 decibels is about the level a symphony orchestra plays at full volume, and prolonged exposure to sound more intense than 85 decibels can cause hearing loss. So, although her brainstem response was absent during removal of the aneurysm, it was not yet absent when the surgeon began cutting into her skull or at the time the cardiac surgeon made the remarks that she remembers hearing. So, in other words, the verifiable parts of Pam's experience, you know, that is the parts that were later verified as genuine by others, occurred while she was not quite yet clinically dead, but was under heavy general anesthetic. But with her eyes taped shut and molded speakers playing 100 decibel clicks into her ears, Therefore, it doesn't seem at all plausible that Pam could have overheard anything in the operating room conversation in the normal fashion. Dr. Sebaum writes, these speakers occlude the ear canals and altogether eliminate the possibility of physical hearing. So in 2007, in response to skeptical ob objections that Pam may have simply overheard the surgeon's remarks, Dr. Sebaum added even more detail to this account. Stephen Cordova neuroscience manager at the Barrow Neurological Institute, who is the intraoperative technologist responsible for inserting small molded speakers into Spetzler's patients in the early 1990s when Reynolds surgery was performed, told me that after these speakers were molded into each external auditory canal, they were further affixed with mounds of tape and gauze to seal securely the earpiece into the ear canal. This tape and gauze would cover the whole ear panay making it extremely unlikely that Reynolds could have physically overheard operating room conversation one hour and 20 minutes after anesthesia had been induced. Ordinary conversation is at around 60 decibels, and the 100 decibel clicks were 10,000 times more intense than that. In her testimony, Pam neither mentions hearing loud clicks nor struggling to hear through them. Pam's neurosurgeon, Dr. Robert Spessler, added these words. I don't think that the observations she made were based on what she experienced as she went into the operating theater. They were just not available to her. For example, the drill and so on, those things are all covered up. They're not visible. 
they were inside their packages. You really don't begin to open until the patient is completely asleep so that you maintain a sterile environment. At that stage in the operation, nobody can observe or even hear in that state. And I find it inconceivable that, in, that the normal senses, such as hearing, let alone the fact that she had clicking modules in each ear, that there were any way for her to hear through normal auditory pathways. I don't have any explanation for it. I don't know how it's possible for it to even happen. And the other parts of Pam's near-death experience involve a journey through a dark shaft toward a pinpoint of light that grew larger and brighter as she approached, entering the light and meeting there with several deceased relatives before being sent back to her body, which was described by Pam as looking like what it was, dead. Her experience clearly began before standstill was initiated, which raises the question, did her near-death experience continue during the period of flat EEG and no blood flow to the brain? Sabam, correctly, by the way, points out, the question is not when Reynolds' near-death experience began, but when it ended. Uh, Reynolds described her near-death experience as an uninterrupted, continuous experience perceived to be as real at the beginning during her out-of-body experience as it was throughout. According to her, the near-death ended at the close of surgery around 2 p.m., a time frame that included the period of standstill and flat EEG. My construction of Reynolds combined autoscopic and transcendental near-death experience as a continuous, unbroken encounter was based entirely on her testimony. Testimony course correlated at times with events in the operating room. And interestingly, Reynolds' claim of continuity within her experience is consistent with virtually all of the reports of combined near-death experiences that I have studied over the past 30 years. Well, what about the time that passed between the operation and the time Dr. Sebon interviewed her? Pam's operation occurred in August 1991, and Sabom interviewed her November 11, 1994. Could Pam's memory of the event have become embellished during the three-year interval? Dr. Sabom thinks it wasn't likely. Several independent statistical studies have demonstrated no significant alteration in people's memories of near-death experiences over years or even over decades. Dr. Grayson, for instance, readministered a questionnaire to 72 individuals who had been given an identical questionnaire after their near-death experience, an average of almost 20 years previous, in order to compare the responses. And detailed statistical analysis revealed, contrary to expectations, account of near-death experiences were not embellished over a period of almost two decades. These data support the reliability of near-death experience accounts. So Pam Reynolds' case is one of the best documented and easily the most extraordinary near-death experience ever reported. So we can go on and discuss many of these uh, near-death experiences. Some of the most interesting ones, by the way, are near-death experience of people who've been blind from birth. And uh, there are two doctors uh, who... Uh, researchers Kenneth Ring and Sharon Cooper launched an in-depth experiment of near-death experiences in people who are blind. And they published these results in a book they titled Mindsight. 
and they found 21 cases in which people who were blind had near-death experiences. Um, and out of these 21 cases, uh, 15 individuals claimed to have had some sort of sight during their near-death experiences. Three were not sure whether they saw or not, and the remaining three did not appear to see at all. So Ring and Cooper also collected 10 cases of out-of-body experiences not associated with a medical crisis. And in, th in these cases, the figures are even more impressive. Nine out of 10 people who were blind claimed to have had sight while they remembered being out of their bodies, <clears throat> and the other person wasn't sure. Uh, their total sample included 14 individuals who were blind from birth, and from among that group, nine individuals, or 64%, reported that they could see during a near-death experience or an out-of-body experience. So Ring and Cooper summarized what people who are blind tend to report seeing in these circumstances. In general, blind people report the same kinds of visual impressions as sighted persons do in describing near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences. For example, 10 of our 21 near-death experiencers said they had some kind of vision of their physical body, and 7 of our 10 out-of-body experiencers said likewise. Occasionally, there are other this-worldly perceptions as well, such as seeing a medical team at work on one's body or seeing various features of the room or surroundings where one's physical body was. Otherworldly perceptions abound also and seem to take the form characteristic for transcendental near-death experiences of sighted persons, radiant light, otherworldly landscapes, angels or religious figures, deceased relatives, and so forth. These visual perceptions also tended to be extremely clear and detailed, especially when they found themselves in the otherworldly portions of their near-death journeys. I'll give you one example of an apparent visual perception by a woman who was blind and experienced cardiac arrest at home. This woman had the ability, this is in a, 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 one of the, a colleague of uh, Ring and Cooper's, her uh, there was a nurse who was a near-death experience researcher, uh, Ingergard Bergstrom, who was a Swedish colleague. She said, this woman had the ability only to distinguish light and darkness. She could, for example, see daylight coming through a window in an otherwise darkened room. She could not, however, make out silhouettes or walk in dimly lit corridors. She had a cardiac arrest. Um, when this woman came to be interviewed, she arrived in a wheelchair accompanied by her husband and agreed to allow the interview to tape recorded. Um, at, at one point in asking her a question, I expressed myself badly by saying, did you at any, on any occasion see? That was very embarrassing because I knew she was blind. Her husband reacted with disappointment, which is obvious to me by the look on his face. But the woman herself, on the contrary, was pleased at the question and answered, it's fine you ask about that because there's one thing I thought about a lot. When I had my cardiac arrest, I suddenly saw the sink with the surroundings, and I hadn't seen any of that for 10 years. The husband reacted with surprise and wondered why she didn't tell him about that. He always thought she told him everything. She answered then, you never asked if I saw anything at the time my heart stopped. She then told how the sink appeared out of the fog and that there was unwashed china piled up in it. That was the husband's responsibility, and he looked very guilty. We're going to leave it at that, and... Uh, if that doesn't convince the skeptics, I don't know what would. Uh, people blind from birth describing what they looked like and what happened while they were uh, out of body. 
and describing verifiable details. I mean, I mean, come on, you know. <laughs> uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, we're going to end a little early tonight because I'm really tired. Uh, I've had a, a long day. Uh, uh, Tuesdays are the days when I catch up on my uh, my client work when I'm doing my altar work, and we had a open house with my granddaughter, and I'm signing off and going to bed about five minutes early. Next week, we're going to start a discussion of Native American spirituality in honor of the Black Hawk Power Shrine, which I think you should visit on my Facebook and on the Internet. So uh, good luck to you guys. I hope you have a good week. I believe uh, we're in the shadow of Mercury retrograde, aren't we? And uh, for those of you who don't believe, no explanation of that is possible. For those of you that do believe, no explanation is necessary. Um, Good luck with it. Uh, See you next week. You know, I love you all, and um, stay tuned. We've got more interesting things coming up. But for now, bye-bye. We're logging out. See you next week.